Martin Luther believed firmly that after Scripture, there was nothing that compared to music as far as building our faith and strengthening our souls. Music has a way of getting into us, and uh, it's my hope and my prayer that the songs we sing today will travel with you as you leave this place. And uh, as he wrote and sang of this mighty fortress of our God, this strong tower, it was because he knew the character of God. And he chose to consider the character of God, to remember that our God is indeed a mighty fortress. And he wanted those in his congregation to remember in the midst of all that was going on around them and all of the chaos and disorder, and especially at that time, death, poverty, suffering, oppression. We complain a lot today. We have no idea what real suffering and oppression looks like. He wanted them to remember and to choose to trust God's word no matter what it felt like in the moment. As we continue in, our, uh, in the wilderness st- series today, I'm going to invite you to turn to Numbers 14 once again. We've spent a bunch of time here in Numbers 13 and 14 and as we have uh, been, been uh, kind of hovering, we, we looked at them in a big chunk at at the whole story and in this whole narrative that we have here uh, what has happened is they've the the people of Israel have come out of Egypt a little over a, a year and a half ago and God brought them by miraculous signs and wonders out of their slavery in Egypt and then he brought them to the foot of Mount Sinai spent about a year giving them his word giving them the law that would express to them the heart and character of God so that they, as his covenant people, could live holy lives separate from the nations around them, not look like the world around them because they were set apart to him. He was holy, and therefore his people were to be holy. So his law taught them how to do that. Unfortunately, the problem that we run into is we're not so good at holy. We're really not good at keeping the, the requirements of the law. And as we read in Romans earlier, the law can only bring wrath. It can't give life, but when we transgress it, when we break the law, it brings punishment. That's a problem. The promise comes by faith. So what God had always wanted from his people from the very beginning, from Genesis, this is what he wants from every human being ever created, is an intimate relationship with him. It really is that simple. Sin separates us from God. Sin at its root is me doing my thing instead of doing God's thing. He created me for a purpose. The purpose is his glory and pleasure. And in his glory and pleasure, I find my highest pleasure, my joy, my greatest fulfillment. Unfortunately, my feelings often cry out for something else. Adam and Eve had everything. And their feelings, as they listened to the voice of the interloper, 
led them astray to do their thing instead of God's thing. <coughs> when we get to this narrative, the people are in the same boat. God's about to finally bring them into the promised land that he has promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and 400 years that they spent in slavery in Egypt after that time. They waited for God to send this great inheritance that they had promised. He delivers them, shows them his mighty power and his personal direct intervention in their lives. He brings them to Sinai, gives them the law. Now he's about to bring them into Canaan to, to cross the Jordan and go in and take hold of this possession, this inheritance. He said, I'm going to give you a great land with great cities that you didn't build, houses that you get to live in that you didn't build, vineyards and fields that you didn't plant, you didn't tend, but you're going to get to harvest them. You're going to get to have this. This is what I'm bringing to you. I'm going to give you these things. They get there. But they're kind of nervous to go in. So God says, okay, send spies in. Send, send scouts. Do a little recon. He's patient with their weakness Unfortunately, the 12 representatives of the 12 tribes that they sent to do the recon come back with a bad report, at least 10 of them. They come back with a report that says, man, this is better than you could have ever imagined. But it's hard. There's a lot of people. They've got everything occupied. And they've got these, these built-up, fortified cities. They've got walls around them. You know, this is, this is a thing. These people are made for war. And on top of that, they're bigger than us. There's, more of, there's all these people everywhere, and they're giants. They're descendants of Anak, the, the giant. We've got to go back. Forget it. Backpedal. Flip it in reverse. We're heading back to Egypt. The slavery thing was better than this. They rejected God in their unbelief. So, we get to today. I'm going to invite you, if you are in Numbers 14, to read along with me, uh, starting with verse 19. We've seen this already, but I want to focus in on this particular passage. And we're really looking at what comes in, in uh, 21 and following, but just to kind of rope us into it we'll take the last sentence of the previous paragraph in 19 in accordance with your great love Moses says forgive the sin of these people just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now the Lord replied I have forgiven them as you asked nevertheless as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of the men who saw my glory and the miraculous signs I performed in Egypt and in the desert, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their forefathers. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it, but because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly. I'll bring him into the land he went to. And his descendants will inherit it. Will inherit it. Since the Amalekites and Canaanites are living in the valleys. Turn back tomorrow. Set out toward the desert along the route to the Red Sea. 
May the Lord add His blessing to the reading of His Word. Father, as we begin our study today, it is my hope and my prayer that You would speak beyond Your servant's faltering tongue, that by Your Holy Spirit You would open our eyes and our hearts to receive Your Word, that we would listen to no other voice Not the voice of a man, not the voice of the enemy, not the voice of our feelings or the world around us, but we would hear only you. Now, Father, cause us to take this in in such a way that it doesn't merely fill our minds, but it transforms our lives for your glory alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So when the spies scouted out the land, uh, they found fortified cities, stone walls. Think about how much work it took back then to build these stone walls, to go out and gather stones, and to bring them and to arrange them. If you've ever been to uh, England or Scotland, you, you have a real good picture of it. I've never been to such glamorous places uh, although I've had some really ugly weather, which kind of made me think I was there. But, but I was in Kentucky and saw similar things. These stone walls that had been stacked up generations before that stretched for miles. Miles. Now, I have a hard time getting through one project in my house in a timely fashion and making my wife happy. I don't know about y'all, but it can be a struggle for me. I get it started and, you know... You know Two weeks later, I'm still on the same thing because I get pulled away. You're talking about stacking stones in a way that offers protection according to a plan that stands not only as a boundary or a barrier uh, to, to show a property line, but to offer protection, and that lasts. That's a lot of work. So much work, so much effort, so much time transporting the stones from wherever they were, arranging them just so in order to form that wall boundary or barrier. They built medieval fortresses or castles the same way. They, they would gather stones and they'd bring them together and they would intentionally fit them together to serve their purpose. We essentially do the same thing today only with fabricated materials made specifically for that purpose. We have fancy equipment. So as much work as that was, imagine how it might be different if the people doing the work, instead of intentionally placing the stones where they needed to be, just sort of plopped them down wherever they felt like it. You carry them over, hey, we're building a wall, and you just bring the stone over and just toss it. The wall doesn't get built. Or even even uh, worse, what if an enemy infiltrated their ranks, misleading the stackers to unwittingly give the enemy a stronghold right there within the city from which they could wreak havoc? Spiritually speaking, that's precisely the difference between building a fortress of faith, if you will, or allowing the enemy of your soul to gain a stronghold of unbelief in your life. Whether we trust our Father or we trust our feelings, we're stacking stones that build lasting strongholds in our lives. 
brings me to our core reality for today. Both trusting and not trusting the Lord are habit-forming. Both trusting and not trusting the Lord are habit-forming. If you'll recall in the story, at the beginning of chapter 10, they're setting, they're all set, they got everything in place, God's arranged them, He's prepared them, and they're about to embark on their march. Everything's good. And up until chapter 10, everything that happens in the book of Numbers is the people did exactly as the Lord commanded through Moses. You get to chapter 11 and they set out. They've only been gone on the march three days and already they're grumbling. That's all it took. Movement. You're doing what you were supposed to be doing. You're doing what you've been looking forward to. But you're just getting started and it's like, are we there yet? And it's not just the weakness of it. They're grumbling against God. So God's anger breaks out and burns against them. And Moses prays. The fire of God's wrath dies down. And immediately they're grumbling again. They get past that moment of unbelief. And then, your translation probably says, the the rabble among them. Some might say the mixed company among them. Those who were not believers. Those who were traveling with them, but they weren't traveling in the same spiritual direction. And those had a craving, a lust for meat. They had enough manna, tired of this stuff, and they got the people stirred up. And as you know, these feelings can be contagious. When you hang around somebody, their attitude or your attitude, it catches like a virus. And so this craving for meat, this lust of the flesh spread and the people grumbled against God. They didn't pray to God. They complained about God. It becomes a problem. Strike two. You see, it gets bigger. Even in the telling of the story in chapter 11, the first couple of verses give us that first bit of complaint, that first grumbling then the story gets bigger. Then we get into chapters 13 and 14, and it's a bigger story yet, and it's a bigger faithlessness yet. They actually get to the promised land. They're on the, on the verge of it, and they can see it. And God says, here, I'm going to just show you. Let me just give you, you know, a preview of coming attractions here. And they come back, and it's like, Unbelievable. This is fantastic. Except for it's not. Let's go home. Home being where they used to live. In that old life. In the bondage that they were in. When they spent 400 years, not the whole 400 years, complaining and crying, God, get us out of this mess. God gets them out and they want to go back. This becomes strike three. God rejects that generation but forgives his people so he doesn't break his covenant and for his own glory he shows compassion to the people and he brings the children in that they were so worried about and they get to inherit it the people developed a habit of trusting their own wisdom their own understanding their own feelings over god's promises 
but not Caleb. And not Joshua. Caleb gets singled out here because he's kind of the mouthpiece in the scene. But Caleb and Joshua both get brought in because they're both faithful. Of the 12 spies that go in, two of them come back telling the people, let's go. Yeah, they're giants, but who cares? We have God. Let's go. God said it. Let's do it. Simple. Why? What was the difference? Well, there was a a pretty significant difference, and it was the habit of trusting God versus the habit of trusting themselves. Habits don't really take much effort to develop. We form them all the time. I don't know how many of you have ever spent time in a cow pasture, <clears throat> but cattle have a tendency to play follow the leader. They, they tend to walk the same path in a kind of natural single file. It's kind of weird because they, they look like they're moving in a big mob, but they develop these cow paths, these, these trails. They follow each other over the same path until a visible trail is worn into the ground. Whatever we do over and over naturally forms a habit in the same way that continuing to travel the same path forms a visible trail. Here's the catch. Good habits do require intentional effort. I think we can all recognize that uh, bad habits form easy, amen? Well, I don't have to try to form a bad habit. You know, it's my natural inclination is toward all seven of the seven deadly sins that people talk about. It's not in the Bible, but human characterizations of them give us these seven categories. And man, I'm prone to every dead gum, one of them, including saying dead gum from the pulpit, which is probably inappropriate. There I get an amen. So. Good habits do require intentional effort. We form habits all the time without thinking, and they drive the way we conduct our lives. The key is to form habits that we actually want, habits that help us rather than hurt us, and that requires intentional effort and deliberate choices. We need to stack the stones in the right way. We will make choices that form our habits. Whether they serve us or whether we serve them depends on those choices, what they are, and their repetition over time. Now, there's an old story about a sign at an intersection of an Alaskan highway that reads, choose your rut wisely, you'll be in it for the next 50 miles. Our lives tend to be like that as well. Near the end of his letter to the Romans, Paul writes this in Romans 15, 13. It's actually our memory verse for the day, so it's printed for you in your programs. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. His prayer for the church is that God would fill them with all joy and peace. Isn't that a great prayer? Doesn't that just sound wonderful? Preach it, Paul. You pray that prayer. I bet that many of you pray for the same thing. In fact, uh, you may even wonder if God's ever going to answer that prayer for you. You might feel like there's something wrong between you and God that you don't seem to have that joy and peace. But don't miss the next part of what Paul says. As you trust in Him. Uh, therein lies the rub. 
Paul's talking not about the magic downloading of joyful and peaceful feelings into us, but the effect God provides as we do the hard work of leaning into the eternal truth of his word when our feelings are screaming for our attention and allegiance. It's not the hard work of trying to get right and earn God's favor that we cannot do. All that can ever be done was done by Jesus Christ at the cross. Amen? Jesus has fulfilled the law of God for us on our behalf. And he died as an atoning sacrifice in our place to pay the debt for the sins that we have committed, do commit, or ever will commit. We take hold of that by faith alone, not by our effort. However, faith requires a certain effort. I have to focus my mind past my feelings. I have to be able to say, this is where I feel like going, but I'm going to trust God's promise and his word, and I'm going to build my life over here instead. I'm not just going to drop the stones wherever I feel like it. I'm going to stack them to build a fortress of faith. This is the effort that it takes. When our feelings are screaming for our attention and allegiance, it's hard work to lean into the eternal truth of God's word. This kind of trust of being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not yet see takes practice. I'm talking about practice. It's important for us to recognize that practice is part of this. It's a matter of choosing our ruts wisely, of intentionally stacking stones. As we learn to trust Him more, the hope He gives will overflow in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. But it doesn't come by accident. Turn with me, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 3. I'm going to read from here, and then we're going to go to Romans 10. So if you get there before I do, you can get a head start. Hebrews is past Romans, toward the end of the book. If you get to Revelation, you went too far, but you're almost there. Hebrews is right before James. After James comes a bunch of skinny letters in the book of Revelation. Hebrews chapter 3. I want to read more, but I'm going to restrain myself and start with verse 7. If you're not familiar with the book of Hebrews, this is one of the few books we don't actually know who the author is. Today I think it's Paul. Tomorrow I might think it was Apollos. We don't really know. Uh, I tend to lean toward Paul, but it doesn't really matter. And it certainly doesn't matter what I think. But as we read this, this book of Hebrews, the purpose of this letter to the scattered tribes of, uh, of the Hebrews across the nations, the diaspora, if you will, is to connect the dots from the Old Testament to the New. It's to help the, the, the Jew specifically see that there is a purpose in what God has done in the New Covenant. And it's not different from what he had always intended from the beginning and revealed in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, we see Christ concealed. It's pointing toward him, and yet we don't see him 
directly. In the New Testament, we see Christ revealed, and the Old Testament is explained through the New. Hebrews is very specifically for that purpose. Without further ado, we begin reading at verse 7. So as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert. It's referring to this whole period that we're reading about here in Numbers and, and the other related books of the early history where God's people rebelled against Him. They tested Him. Verse 9 where your fathers tested and tried me, the Lord says. And for 40 years saw what I did. That's why I was angry with that generation and I said their hearts are always going astray. They've not known my ways. They formed habits of unbelief. Verse 11, so I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. In other words, you get a choice about it. Let that sink in for a second. You get a choice about whether you believe or don't believe. Now, the Holy Spirit has to open your eyes to see the truth, but in the midst of that, after you have come into this relationship, because you have received the truth, now you get to decide if you will believe it, if you will do something about it, or if you're just going to go along with the flow. Any dead fish can do that. You're called to swim. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Sin is deceitful and it hardens our hearts. Verse 14 we have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. Holding is not about feelings. It's about choosing to rest in convictions that you don't feel in the moment. It's, just, it's being certain of what we don't yet see. As has just been said today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Turn back to Romans chapter 10. Still in the New Testament, but on the right side of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. We read earlier from Romans chapter 4. We're going to be reading from chapter 10. And this will be the foundation of what we see uh, moving forward through the, the, the points that you want to write down in the sermon. The book of Romans is Paul's magnum opus from my perspective this is paul writing this this treatise it's a letter to the church at rome a mixture of jews and gentiles and and as he is doing this he is dealing with a number of issues but what he's really doing is he's laying out the human condition the need for salvation and god's provision and means of salvation he's laying out the gospel from beginning to end 
Paul, in, in 16 chapters, writes... He doesn't write it in chapters. We added those later on so we can find our way around. But he writes to the church to say, this is the gospel. It's a righteousness from God that you obtain by faith. It's credited to you, not earned by you. Jesus did it, and Jesus gives you credit for it. He takes credit for all of your wretchedness and sin, and he gives you credit for the payment that he's made for your sin. That's the cosmic trade that Paul later describes in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. The, the book of Romans spells that out. So here in, <clears throat> excuse me, in chapter 10, uh, we're going to look at the first 17 verses. We're going to build out our idea from uh, verses 14 to 17, but they don't do much good if we don't see the rest of it. Paul is writing, having, having laid out the gospel, having discussed the sovereignty of God in choosing those on whom he has compassion. Here in, in chapter 10, Paul says, Brothers, my heart's desire and, and prayer to God is for the Israelites is that they may be saved. Remember, Paul is a Jew. He is an Israelite. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God. Remember, he talked about that in chapter four, in chapter 1 and then again in chapter 4. They did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness, which as we read is by faith. Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses describes in this way the righteousness that is by the law. The man who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we are proclaiming. Let me just back up and clarify the picture here of going up to bring Christ down or down to bring Christ up is a picture of the effort of getting to God. Every religion is about man trying to get to God. Christianity, which is not a religion, it is a reality, not a set of beliefs that we adhere to. It's how the, work, the world works, and we got to get in line with that or we're working counter to reality. The point is, I'm not trying to get to God because I can't. But God came to us. He did the saving. He did the work. He did the reaching out. He did the change inside of you to quicken your heart so that you actually want Him. Because until God touches you, you and I are not even good enough to want Him. We want our own way. Why do we sin? Because we want to. Pretty simple. What changes my hard heart is when God says, I'm going to open this one's eyes. 
I'm going to take that heart of stone out of you and I'm going to put in a heart of flesh that responds to me. It's not about my work. It's about His work and my trusting that work. So back to what he's saying here. Uh, verse 8, what does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we are proclaiming. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. That, that's it. Not, not a bunch of things to jump through. <coughs> confess with your, with your mouth. It does, not just profess. You're not just saying with your mouth. You have to get it from inside. You have to believe it. Right? You have to believe that God raised him from the dead and not be ashamed of him, but willing to say it, to live it. You'll be saved. For it is with the heart that you believe and are justified. Justified means made right with God. And it's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. No one who comes to Him gets turned away. How then, this is the part we want to focus on as we build out this, this faith development process. How then can they call on the one they've not believed in? How can they believe in the one of whom they've not heard? How can they hear without someone preaching to them? How can they preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who's believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. as we progress through this. You've got some blanks in your program to fill in that hopefully will help you follow the, the process. We're going to take this in reverse order of what we see there in, in Romans 10. First, notice this in the development of faith. Faith requires knowledge. Faith requires knowledge. This is the hearing part. Faith comes through hearing. I have to hear the truth or read the truth. I have to take it in in order to believe the truth. Caleb was able to believe God because he knew the God he believed. Well, that seems pretty obvious, pretty simple, right? Caleb had walked those miles with everybody else. He saw what they saw. If he had not seen, like the pagan nations then it would not logically follow that he would believe. But Caleb knew God's history. He knew God's character. He knew God's promises. For me to trust God's word over my feelings, I have to know God's word. I can't believe the gospel if I don't know the gospel. If somebody doesn't tell me about it, if I don't hear it, if I don't get that knowledge into my head, I have nothing to base my faith on. I need to sit under the expository preaching and teaching of the scriptures. I need to diligently study the word. 
We need to diligently study the word for ourselves. Yes, we sit under the, the expository preaching and teaching. That's a central, necessary part of it as God has, has ordained it for us. But we don't just rest in someone else telling us what to believe. Like the Berean church in Acts 17, the noble thing is to diligently search the scriptures and hold the preacher accountable. You don't need to know what I have to say. You need to know what God has to say. We cannot put our trust in something we don't know. Faith requires knowledge. Secondly, notice this. Faith is conceived in decision. Faith is conceived in decision. The knowledge is a prerequisite. We have to have that in order to be able to have something to believe. Apart from the knowledge, we cannot have faith. But faith begins at conception by a decision. I have to decide that I believe that what I have heard is true and trustworthy. Right? We can have lots of information. You can have heard the gospel a million times. You can have sat in church your whole life. Sitting in your garage doesn't make you a car. Sitting at McDonald's doesn't make you a hamburger. Neither does sitting at church cause you to believe. It causes you to hear. And when you hear and you have that information, faith is conceived when you believe that that information is worth something that it is true and trustworthy. Caleb knew enough about the Lord to decide that he was worth trusting. No matter what circumstances might arise, giants, I don't care about giants. What, what difference does that make? When we've learned the truth about who God is and His offer of covenant love to us, we have to actually decide that we consider it worth trusting. This is where knowledge becomes belief and faith is conceived. Faith is conceived in decision, in believing. Third, we see that faith is born in obedience. Faith is born in obedience. This is where the birth happens. So as our faith is gestating, if you will, to stay with the illustration, we don't see it. God is working, and there's something there, and we, we believe it. We make this decision that I'm going to trust it, but nobody else knows. When my wife had many children, all of these children spent nine months without me knowing what they looked like. Yeah, you get a blurry picture from an ultrasound, but you know I, I don't get to see the beauty that is my children, right? This is when my son gives me an amen. But there's that moment when they're born and I see them. And that's when we rejoice, isn't it? We're excited when, when we find out that a baby's been conceived. Hey, honey, uh, took the test today. And, and we celebrate and we do the gender reveal parties and all these, which I guess are falling out of fashion and you, you all know. Anyhow, all of the celebrations that we do are limited during that time of gestation. But when the baby comes out, when you see the baby, now everything changes, right? Because when there's a baby in the room, 
You can't not notice it. Sometimes you wish you could. It's like, uh, honey, I think this, it's time for you to take, the, whoo, take this baby. Sometimes it's crying, sometimes it's cooing, but it's doing something. Our faith is born when it does something. When people can see it, because we're not talking about it, we're walking it. This is the calling on him part. When we call on Christ, we're acting on the belief. The faith conceived in the secret place inside by my belief is fully born when I act on it. Caleb didn't merely talk about believing in the Lord. He acted on it. And God blessed his faith in action. We see that same thing in Abraham. Paul focuses in in Romans 4, as we read earlier, on the believing side of Abraham's faith. James takes the same story of Abraham, but he focuses on the doing, acting on the faith aspect of his faith. He believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And Paul is using that, that side of it to illustrate or to emphasize that it the righteousness from God is through faith alone, not through our works. James is saying the same thing, but with an asterisk. Yeah, but if your faith comes out of your mouth and doesn't come out of your hands and feet, it isn't really faith. Abraham believed God, so he obeyed God. Faith is born in obedience. Trusting God is not theoretical, it is practical. I choose to believe, therefore I choose to obey. If I fail to obey, mark this now. If I fail to obey, it is because in that moment of decision, I fail to believe. Doesn't mean I'm unsaved. It means in the moment when it matters, I drop the ball. I put my eyes on my feelings, my own understanding instead of the Lord. So I don't obey because in that moment I don't believe. In salvation, our hearing and believing the gospel leads us to calling on the Savior to save us. We can't call on Him if we don't believe in the word we received and we can't realistically claim to believe if we don't act on it. If we believe that God is holy and we are sinful, but God has made a way for us in Jesus, that faith finds its birth in our grateful desire to please Him. Faith is born in obedience. So those three give us the platform for number four, which brings us back to the story. All of this is leading up to the core reality we want to remember today. If you forget everything else, remember that core reality that we discussed, that both trusting and not trusting the Lord are habit-forming. We'll see a few different uh, passages as we consider this next part. Faith grows through exercise. Faith grows through exercise. In other words, it's the testing of our faith. That's the proving. I can sit around and think about exercise in my physical body, which I'm very happy to do, because it's way easier than getting out and doing something, right? 
but I don't get any stronger. My cardio doesn't get any better while I'm sitting in the recliner thinking about it or watching YouTube videos about fitness. Not helpful. How does my faith, now that it's born, grow? It grows by movement, by exercise. And if you've ever done any exercise, <laughs> it hurts. The older I get, the more out of shape I am because I haven't exercised, the harder it is. Can you recognize that faith is a little like that too? If I'm not used to acting on my faith, trying to do so when it isn't my habit is really hard. And it can hurt. It can be really difficult. And I see all the things that are happening and I feel all the feelings that are coming up inside of me. And they're taking me one direction, but I know i got to go here to exercise my faith. And it hurts. Faith grows through exercise, which generally means adversity. This reality is quite evident in every life. We all intuitively know that it has to be tested for it to grow. No less so in the contrast between the Israelites as a whole and Caleb and also Joshua, who is not spotlighted in the passage that we looked at, but is... Uh, connected there with Caleb. The Israelites had been stacking stones of unbelief since the beginning of chapter 10. If we go back to the book of Exodus, which we're not going to do today, but you can do for your homework, and you start in chapter 14 and start moving forward, you see that it had been going on much longer than that. Their grumbling began almost immediately after leaving Egypt. Remember that whole golden calf idol thing, right? Their stronghold of unbelief had gotten to be tall and wide and rather overwhelming. Their re repeated choice to give in to the feelings of the flesh became a deeply ingrained habit, a stronghold. It became their default mode. And just like a sedentary life trying to exercise, when the moment of crisis came, choosing faith was really, really hard. So like most of us, they didn't. It wasn't their habit. They were used to unbelief. It was their automatic, their default mode. Clearly, Caleb and Joshua were not numbered among those who were ruled by wicked unbelief. Joshua, Moses' right-hand man, was shown to be filled with zeal for God virtually every time his name comes up. Early on, he's mentioned with this zeal and he doesn't say much. Later on, he gets a book that carries his own name as he takes over from Moses and leads the people into the promised land and does repeatedly for 40 years what he and Caleb do here. Caleb's the, the spokesperson now. Joshua will be the spokesperson for God to the nation for 40 years. And in the book of Joshua, with, with one prominent exception, it's victory after victory after victory after victory because they walk by faith, not by sight. And God's blessing carries them. Likewise, Caleb shows a consistent character and a pattern of acting on his wholehearted faith in God. Trusting God became his regular habit, his default. Notice the Lord said, Caleb, he's got a different spirit than these guys. 
That, that's not some mystical, magical idea. It's that his character was different than the character of the crowd. He did not waver in unbelief. Instead, just like Abraham, he chose to trust the promises of God. Caleb serves me wholeheartedly. That didn't just start in a moment. The stones Caleb had been stacking over the course of a lifetime built a strong fortress of faith. Trusting our feelings is habit-forming. So is choosing to trust God. Every time I choose to trust God, I learn that the truth is true and God is trustworthy. Every time I choose to trust my feelings, I undermine my own faith. I create more space for doubting God's word and his character. Faith develops through practice, practice, practice. I must learn by practice to persevere in faith. That which I do repeatedly eventually becomes my default. My default In athletics, we refer to that as muscle memory. It's the idea that practice makes, not perfect, but permanent. Good practice, that's a good thing. Bad practice, those habits become permanent. Practice makes permanent. What I do repeatedly becomes my default. So I don't practice that shot. I don't practice that stance. I don't practice getting down on a ground ball until I get it right. If you've done it, you know. You practice it till you can't get it wrong. Till it's an automatic that I don't have to think about. Faith works the same way. When I trust God once... It makes trusting him a second time a little easier, but it doesn't make it automatic. When I trust God over and over and over and over and over again, in all of the little boring things of life, it sets me up so that it becomes my default. So that just like Caleb and Joshua, when the moment of crisis comes, boom. Is there a question? God said, go in, we go in. What are we talking about? Why are we even having this conversation? Let's get to work. we got a promised land to take. We build a default. Practice makes permanent in athletics or in faith. What I repeatedly think shapes my feelings and my actions. What I repeatedly do forms my habits, thoughts, deeds, attitudes, perspectives, it's even true of strange foods. What I get used to, what I do repeatedly becomes normal. Every choice, thought, or action stacks another stone in the fortress of my faith or in a stronghold of unbelief. Whenever I test the Lord by trusting Him, I find Him faithful. Whenever I test Him by trusting my feelings, my own understanding, I distance myself from reality and God appears less trustworthy. Truth is always true and the reality of God's character does not change but my faith or my fears will become as strong as my choices make them my choices determine my destiny fear is habit forming so is faith trusting my feelings and trusting God's word both form habits all right let's bring this home with a couple of things here first and you can jot this down to have big faith in big moments, I must begin with little faith in little moments. 
We're going to have times that test us, crises. You get that bad report from the doctor. you got a big thing you have to believe God for. To have big faith in big moments, I must begin with little faith in little moments. Just as every stone we stack contributes to building the fortress, the choices we make become habits. Choices form habits. Caleb and Joshua did not just suddenly come to their faithful conclusion. The others did not just suddenly fail to trust God. These responses were developed as habits over time. Parents, this is why it's so important for us to build a framework of Christ-like character for our children. We don't make them believe. We can't give them belief, but we can give them habits that will carry them in that direction, that will make it normal. Let's normalize righteousness in our children. When they begin to think according to truth, then their experience will reflect reality. And we're setting the table for them to receive life in Christ. These things didn't just happen. They were developed as habits over time. The one I trust in my small decisions becomes the one I trust in my big decisions. My habits determine my default. My faith in a crisis will not exceed my faith in the mundane moments of life where my choices determine my destiny. Both faith and fear grow stronger with practice. Fearfulness and faithfulness are both developed through repetition. Perhaps you're struggling right now with fears or temptations. You may have spent years wrestling with some besetting sin, praying for God to deliver you, only to find yourself face down in the mud time and time again. You might ask, why can't I beat this? Why can't I get over? It's because I've developed habits, strongholds, and fortified them over time. The longer I build them, the stronger they become, the more resistant to change or attack. If that's a good, solid foundation of faith, I'm resistant to attack and to change. If it isn't, if it's a stronghold of unbelief, then it's resistant to repentance and to change. Take heart, though. Christ has already defeated the power of sin. He's already won your victory. He's already made you clean, made you His, and given you His own resurrection power to walk in the newness of a reborn life in Him. This applies when you actually are reborn in him if you're in christ you have been predestined if you're in christ you have been predestined to be perfectly conformed to the likeness of christ you can't lose in the end when you see him face to face god doing the work in you by His Holy Spirit, will finish what He started and you will be just like Him. That's His promise. Stop worrying about the giants of your failures or your doubts or your sin and march boldly into the inheritance the Lord has already delivered you. Stop chasing after your cravings for the quail of feelings and embrace the bread from heaven, the bread of life that God has already given to you. 
Regardless of your feelings, you get to decide where you will stack your stones. Both trusting and not trusting the Lord are habit-forming. Don't wait for the crisis. Start now. Build your fortress of faith by developing habits of trusting your Father over your feelings. Lastly, truth is rooted in relationship. Truth is rooted in relationship. Caleb and Joshua were able to trust God in the crucial moment because their trust was in their covenant relationship with God. If they were not in that relationship, they would not have a leg to stand on because they would not have had a promise to trust. Over the years, I've often used my children as illustrations of faith. When they were little, I loved to have them jump to me from stairs, tables, tree branches, etc. If you've been here for any length of time, you've heard me say it a bunch of different times. I, I, you know, depending on who's the young child at the time, I'll use different one as an illustration. I will no longer let Ethan jump to me from tree branches because I might die. They were hesitant at first. They always are. But as they tested me and I proved faithful by catching them, their faith grew. However, that only happened because we had a relationship that gave a reason for that trust. They weren't jumping to a stranger. Now, a little side note here at the end. The younger you start that, the easier it is, right? If they are jumping to me when they're real little, they don't recognize all of the dangers. As they get older, they recognize more of the dangers. If it's a habit for them to trust me before the dangers become evident to them, then when the dangers are evident, they don't matter as much because they trust me. If I wait until they're 15 to have them jump out of a tree branch, they're going to say, uh-uh, <laughs> you're old, I ain't jumping to you. That's too high. Form the habits early. Some of you are struggling right now because you can't break the habits, or at least you don't think you can break the habits. It doesn't feel like it because you've been trying and it hasn't worked. I want faith. I want, I want assurance. I want strength. I want confidence. I, I want to be able to get rid of this sin. Why can't you? Because you're not a baby just starting out. You've already been, if you will, you know, calcified into this. These habits die hard. They're entrenched. The ruts are deep, and it's hard to steer out. Do it when you're young and the ruts are shallow, and you can change those pretty quick. As we get older, it's harder. But that's all it is, is harder. It's not impossible. Because I'm not the one doing it. I just have to trust the one who can't fail. John 10, Jesus says that I'm the good shepherd. My sheep know my voice. We have to be his sheep and recognize his voice in order to trust him. We have to know him. The Lord has offered you that covenant relationship just as Caleb and Joshua, just as Jesus describes if you'll receive it by faith, as many as received him, to them 
He gave the right to become children of God. Trust Him. Receive Christ. Believe and live. No one who comes to Him is ever cast out. If you're in that relationship, that relationship with Christ, but you're struggling, stop listening to the devil's lies. Stop trying to earn the relationship God has given you freely. You could never do it in the first place. Trying now is only going to frustrate you and insult the grace of God. Stop trying to get feelings of peace or strength or victory. Start stacking stones of faith. God has already done all that can ever be done to save you and to set you free. He's already won the victory. All that's left for you is to walk in it by faith. And that takes practice and perseverance. Take your eyes off your feelings. Take your eyes off your circumstances, your surroundings, and lift your gaze. As Paul writes in Colossians 3, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Turn your eyes upon Jesus and the things of earth, your fears, your failings, your temptations, will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we, uh, as we conclude our time together today, I pray that you would do exactly that, that you would cause us to take hold of the joy and peace that you offer us by trusting in your word by taking our eyes off of our feelings, our circumstances, the giants that might threaten to keep us from your great promises and just rest in you. To lean into your character. To turn our eyes upon Jesus. As we sing together and as we leave this place, change us, Father. In the name of your Son, Jesus, by the power of your Holy Spirit and for your glory alone. Amen.